women get pregnant and the first question they ask is what can't I eat instead of asking what should I eat more of like what should I focus on and so I think these risks of getting sick from food are like way overblown in a lot of instances eggs are a perfect example I'll go into some numbers but we really have to take a risk benefit approach to what are you avoiding and what's the nutritional trade-off if you avoid that food for the specific reason. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyberg, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Hey there, Dr. Emily Kybert here with Muscle Medicine Podcasts. This week, we sit down with Lily Nichols, registered dietitian and nutritionist, a certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author of two amazing books, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes and Real Food for Pregnancy. I have read Real Food for Pregnancy twice. I love the book. I give it to all my mamas. There is literally 930 citations. So the woman has done her research. She has great actionable steps of how to beat nausea, especially morning sickness, which is really all day sickness when you're pregnant. If you experience that, she talks about epigenetics of how what you eat affects what genes are turned on in your offspring. And she just gives so many actionable tips. So let us know what you think about the podcast. We're going to do a little shout out today to one of our listeners that wrote an awesome review. This is from Lisa Regos. I loved the first episodes, very informative and also with a cool, friendly vibe. Lisa, thank you so much. So guys, if you feel like this podcast and this content is adding value, if you feel like you're learning something, if you're find yourself telling your friends, Hey, here's this tip for muscle medicine. Go listen, go to iTunes, subscribe, rate and review. I'd love to hear what you have to say. And now Lily Nichols. We have Lily Nichols on muscle medicine podcast today. And I am so excited. I'm going to have a little fangirl moment here. I've read her book, Real Food for Pregnancy, not once, but twice, because I loved it so much. And every single pregnant woman that walks through our clinic, we give them that book because we want them to grow the healthiest, most robust baby that they can. So Lily, I am so excited to have you on and just to share your wealth of knowledge with our listeners, because we have a lot of mama listeners. Well, I am blown away to hear that. So that is just incredible. Thank you. So I'm going to tell you in our audience a little dirty secret. And some of my patients listen to this podcast, so they're going to be like, what? My first pregnancy three years ago with baby Elvis, I gained 50 pounds. So when my water broke, I was a hundred and... 85 pounds. I had gestational diabetes. I had hormonal eczema off the charts. 
Like I wanted to chop my hand off. It was so itchy afterwards. And I had postpartum thyroiditis. And I obviously did not use your tactics from your book. (laughs) I was pounding the morning croissants because I was just craving carbs and really just had full-on gut dysbiosis. And I love every day in the clinic, our pregnant moms, you're like, they have this such deep desire and yearning to grow a healthy baby. And I love that your focus is on real food and also that it's research-based, it's evidence-based. So can you just talk a little bit about your approach to growing a healthy baby? Yeah. And first of all, sorry, your first pregnancy was oh. so rough. That's just so challenging. <laughs> and uh, not, not every complication or annoyance of pregnancy is within our control. But I like to focus on the areas that are within our control. What does the evidence and what does the wisdom from traditional cultures teach us about how we can support our body during this crazy transformative time of pregnancy where so much feels and is out of our control, but what can we control? And we can usually control to some degree minus nausea and food aversions, what we're putting in our body, the type of lifestyle we live, how our sleep habits are, what contact we have with toxins or not in our daily life, like how do you store your food or what cookware do you use, how you think about your mental health, how you move your body, of course, your emphasis. And there's actually a lot we can do to have more enjoyable, less medically complicated pregnancies. And there's a lot of research on specific nutrients and the foods that we find those nutrients that we can focus on to optimize certain aspects of fetal development so we can really like grow a healthier, more robust baby and encourage better brain development. Again, not everything is within our control, but we do have good solid research on some areas that we can focus on supplements and foods to emphasize that can help with that. So I'm just about making the whole process of pregnancy, people's enjoyment of pregnancy a little better, your recovery from pregnancy better because it's so much harder to recover from pregnancy if you're not really well nourished and it takes a long time to replete your nutrient stores. If you can like come into pregnancy, go through at least the majority of your pregnancy, maybe minus the first trimester, eating good nutrient-dense foods, you can set yourself up for a better recovery and easier transition into motherhood, which has so many ups and downs. Which is so empowering because I feel like first time getting pregnant, so many moms feel like almost like pregnancy is happening to them and everything is so new and what's going on. And so really being able to look at their diet, look at the supplements, look at any nutritional deficiencies, their sleep, and really optimize those so that they can grow this healthy baby. So let's break it down. I know a lot of times the conventional recommendations for a diet while you're pregnant is high carb, low fat, which, you know, especially a lot of people who may be more paleo or some women who are doing keto, that sounds like an insane recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> In a nutshell, <laughs> yes. The issue of like what amount of carbohydrates is appropriate for pregnancy or not 
came on my radar in my work with gestational diabetes, which has encompassed a lot of my career. My whole first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, is all about that and my defense for a lower carbohydrate intake for managing blood sugars. It's mind-boggling why the carbohydrate recommendations are so high, well, for the general population, but pregnancy included. When you look at what are the nutrients required in higher amounts during pregnancy and where do we find those nutrients? And in general, you don't find those in significant quantities in carbohydrate-rich foods, or at least foods that are not rich in carbohydrates tend to be much more nutrient-dense sources of those nutrients, such as iron, vitamin B12, folate. There's a few exceptions with folate, like legumes are really high in folate and they have carbohydrates. But you're looking at like liver, leafy greens, avocados, those are your major sources of folate and those are not really rich sources of carbohydrates. Uh, You're looking at iron. You're mainly, when you're looking at iron that's actually going to be absorbed by the body called heme iron, you're looking at animal foods, which generally are not that high in carbohydrates. So there's a bit of a disconnect in the logic, I think, of the conventional recommendations where it just doesn't make sense. So for me, instead of just looking at the recommendations and taking them as gospel, and I will say, I used to practice following the recommendations for my clients with gestational diabetes, and a lot of times their blood sugars got worse. And it was really disheartening as a dietitian to be like, not helping your clients and instead hurting them by the recommendations you're giving. That's the whole reason I bothered looking into this stuff in the first place, right? But we really have to sort of reverse engineer where are we going to get most of our nutrients from food and try to focus on that. At least that's my approach. And then look at what are the foods that traditional cultures tended to really emphasize during pregnancy? What nutrients are found in those? Oh, hey, it just so happens to line up with the modern research where we're getting our choline and our iron and our B12 and our vitamin B6 and all of these, you know, our DHA, these useful nutrients heavily involved in fetal development and brain development, supportive of all the crazy physiological changes that are going on during pregnancy. Let's focus on more of those foods and maybe not have our diet as full of empty carbohydrates. Doesn't mean you don't have to eat any carbohydrates. People sometimes take my stance to be that I recommend like a zero carb diet. And that's not true because you're, I still recommend an omnivorous diet where you're including plant foods, vegetables, fruit. I'm okay with legumes if they work for your digestive system, nuts and seeds, dairy products. Those things all have carbohydrates. They just also come with a lot more nutrients than like white flour, you know? So we just have to be cognizant of like both the quality and quantity of carbohydrates without like shunning them entirely from our diet as like this, you know, evil food group or something. It's just they don't need to be the majority of the diet. They don't need to be 45 to 65% of the diet, which is what our guidelines say. So let's break it down by nutrients. So like, what do women need more of? Nutrient wise, or what may maybe they're deficient in? And how can they get that from real foods? So we already mentioned folate. Mm -hmm. Folate is a big one involved in fetal brain development, especially the very early, like within the first eight weeks of pregnancy, the development of the neural tube. So the prevention of neural tube defects and cleft lip, cleft palate defects, and that you find in real food, 
mostly in liver, legumes, avocado, and leafy greens. Of course, it's also fortified to some foods in a different, more poorly utilized form than what we find in foods, but that's really where you find that one. Another one that's actually related to folate in its function and that it also helps prevent some of these neural tube defects and is very important to brain development is a nutrient called choline, which is a B vitamin-like compound, which was just named after we already gave our B vitamins their like numerical names, <laughs> but it is in the B vitamin family. And it works right alongside with folate for some of the same functions. And choline you find primarily in eggs, in the yolks, second to that liver, and then in small quantities through the rest of the food supply, but not super, super concentrated. Like there's some in cruciferous vegetables, there's some in nuts and seeds, there's some in legumes, a little bit in dairy products, but it's pretty minimal compared to what you get in eggs. So much so that people who don't consume eggs consume about half the choline of somebody who's an egg eater. And most pregnant women, like a shocking percentage, like 94% don't consume even the current RDA for choline, which is set probably lower than it should be set. So yeah. those are two examples. I can go into more if you, if you want me to. Well, I'd love to break out eggs because I think a lot of pregnant women have a fear of getting sick, right? Because it's don't eat raw eggs or don't eat a runny yolk and maybe just avoid eggs altogether because of that to the detriment of not getting enough choline in their diet. Absolutely. And that's another pet peeve I have about our <laughs> nutrition guidelines for pregnancy is that they're so fear-based, so much so that women get pregnant and the first question they ask is, what can't I eat? Instead of asking, what should I eat more of? Like, what should I focus on? And so I, I think these risks of getting sick from food are like way overblown in a lot of instances. Eggs are a perfect example, I'll go into some numbers, but we really have to take a risk benefit approach to what are you avoiding and what's the nutritional trade-off if you avoid that food for the specific reason, usually food safety. There's a couple others that, that come to mind for some other foods. With eggs, that's a food where the nutritional consequences of not consuming eggs because you're afraid you'll get sick if it has runny yolks. And the rationale is that eggs can contain salmonella, which is a bacteria that can make you very sick. And you're more susceptible to getting some sort of foodborne illness during pregnancy than outside of pregnancy because your immune system is intentionally like down-regulating a little bit to allow the fetus, which is essentially like a foreign organism with DNA that's different from you, like it's allowing that to grow. So your, your immune system is different on purpose. However, when you look at the numbers of the actual risk of getting sick from eggs, it's very, very slim. You are eight times more likely to get sick from produce, meaning fresh mm. fruits and vegetables, mostly leafy greens and fruit, than you are from eggs. Like eggs account for 2% of foodborne illnesses in the United States, whereas fruits and, fruits and vegetables account to close to half. Mm -hmm. So the chances that an egg actually contains salmonella is very, 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 very slim. It's, it's unlikely you would even come in contact with one egg in your entire pregnancy 
that even has salmonella, let alone you don't even know if it has salmonella, if you'll actually get sick from it. So safest bet, if you're really, really nervous about this stuff, you just cook your eggs until they're fully done and the yolk is fully cooked and the salmonella has been killed by the heat. That's an option. You can do scrambled eggs, hard-boiled eggs. You could do eggs over hard, so you cook them until the yolk is, is done. Um, but if you're a person who only likes eggs over easy or soft-boiled eggs or something like that, and I, I tend to be one of those people, um, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> you might make the choice to not consume eggs because it's too risky. And I, I don't think that's actually an evidence-based decision. I think the nutritional trade-off is too great for a infinitesimally small risk of getting sick. So I go rogue. I eat eggs every easy during pregnancy without concern. And I know I'm getting plenty of choline for my baby's brain development. So you just have to like, again, just weigh the risk benefit. What uses your anxiety the most? If you're not going to consume eggs, then how are you going to make up for the nutrients not in there? And choline is the biggest one to be concerned about there. What would be a food that does have a high risk that you would encourage mothers to not eat? That would have a a higher probability based on your research that they could potentially get sick. Like eggs, low risk. Pretty low risk. High reward. What would be a food you'd be like, "Mm, if you do not have massive cravings for it, maybe just don't eat it while you're pregnant. That's a great question. My answer to that one is raw shellfish. So like raw oysters. You know, I actually think sushi is generally okay in pregnancy. A lot of other countries condone it. Even the UK, they say it's fine based on all the microbial screening. But shellfish is an exception. Shellfish accounts for 75% of seafood-associated foodborne illness outbreaks in the United States. That's, that's a lot. Like three-quarters of anything associated with seafood is from raw shellfish. Mm. So I think that's a risky one. Unfortunately, it's also like a really incredibly nutrient-dense food. Like oysters and clams especially are ridiculously high, like off the charts high in zinc and vitamin B12. They're really high in iron as well, selenium, a bunch of good stuff. So you can consume them when they're cooked or they've been canned and thus they've been heated during the canning process. I think that's a fine way to consume them, but I, I personally wouldn't take the risk to consume raw shellfish in pregnancy. Yeah. You know, I think it's tricky sometimes for first-time moms and just women who are pregnant because they go to their OB and sometimes they'll ask their OB for nutritional recommendations, but the OB is not a nutritionist. They don't have nutrition backgrounds. Right. They're essentially a surgeon. They're there to deliver the baby, and if there's an emergency, to do a C-section. Women sometimes don't know where to turn. Like, I remember being um, super constipated my first pregnancy, and I think the OB wanted to prescribe me laxatives or something. Yeah, usually they just give you stool softeners. (laughs) Yeah, and I just thought, there's got to be a better way. Can you talk about the importance of vitamin D during pregnancy? I'm in New York. There's very little sun. You're in Washington. (laughs) There's probably just a little sun over there too. (laughs) It's a latitude thing. How much vitamin D you're going to make from the sun is uh, related to the time of year and the latitude you're at. The higher the latitude you're at, the less vitamin D you're going to make in the 
winter months of the year, regardless of which hemisphere you're on. So vitamin D is a vitamin I have like a really special interest in. I don't know. I had a professor in college who was a vitamin D researcher and I took her like graduate level vitamins metabolism class. And I was just, just, I got so much interesting information on vitamin D that it's always been on my radar. So it's one that I've specifically researched a lot and written about and taught about professionally. So vitamin D is fascinating in that it's a vitamin, but it's technically regulated in your body like a hormone. And during pregnancy, even more so, it becomes more important. It's involved in the transcription of many different genes. So it can affect, like if you have a family risk of a certain disease, like having adequate amounts of vitamin D might actually reduce your child's inherited risk of that disease. It's called epigenetics and it's very cool. And there's a lot of different disorders or diseases that are reduced by having adequate amounts of vitamin D during pregnancy for for the child. So risk of like type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune condition, risk of schizophrenia, risk of allergies and eczema, risk of respiratory illness, of course, risk of like bone diseases like rickets. These are all related to vitamin D. Heavily involved in the immune system, so you'll notice a lot of those things are immune related. So when a mother has adequate vitamin D in pregnancy, her child's immune system develops better and they're more robust and more resilient to getting certain illnesses in childhood. So it's just a very important vitamin. And then for the, on the mom side of things, you have a reduced risk of gestational diabetes because it's involved in blood sugar metabolism and reducing insulin resistance. You have a lower risk of preeclampsia, significantly so. You have a lower risk of preterm birth. There was one study where they supplemented mothers with 5,000 IUs of vitamin D per day. It was either in North or South Carolina. I can't remember which, but regardless, that's a a low enough latitude that technically you should be able to make enough vitamin D from the sun pretty much year-round, and they didn't because people don't spend enough time outside in the sun (laughs) most of their body exposed without sunscreen. But anyways, they supplemented all the mothers with that amount. And they found that women who maintained vitamin D levels around 40 or higher had a 60% reduced risk of preterm birth. The association held true even when you controlled for race. So a lot of times African American women, for example, are at a higher risk of preterm birth. If their vitamin D levels were high enough, they still maintain that 60% reduction in in risk of preterm birth, which is just massive. So there's so much more to be said about vitamin D, but it's one of those vitamins that you're probably not going to be getting enough from the sun unless you're like a lifeguard and you live in a very southern part of the United States, like below, you draw a line from like Long Beach, California to Atlanta, Georgia, anything below that, you can make vitamin D year round. Above that, there's going to be a portion of the winter you can't make vitamin D. So that's like three quarters of the U.S. Yeah. You're going to have an issue meeting your vitamin D needs from the sun. You don't get much vitamin D from your diet unless you're a person who's like taking cod liver oil all the time, which I'd argue is on the supplement side of things more than the food side of things. And it has broad reaching effects on your health and your baby's health. 
So I, I think it's an important one for people to consider supplementing with. And it you I've never seen a prenatal that contains enough. So it's one that I recommend in addition to a prenatal. Yeah. That research that 60% reduce risk of preterm birth is kind of mind-blowing. I think a lot yeah. of women associate preterm birth as kind of a like a fluke or it just happened and I didn't have any control or you know this is the divine this was their plan for me or but it really there can be a direct correlation to your vitamin d levels what you're eating I know the FDA guidelines is a very broad (laughs) adequate amount of vitamin d what would you want your moms to be what would you want their adequate levels to be for vitamin d so um, I'll answer this question in two ways because there's the, like the FDA sets the like a recommended intake for nutrients and then separate organizations set the, where your blood levels of the vitamins should be. So they're different things like your serum marker and then what you're taking in. So the FDA sets the adequate amount at 600 IUs per day. And we have study after study after study showing that that's not adequate, not enough to maintain a mother's vitamin D levels and not enough to maintain baby's vitamin D levels, meaning when they measure a baby's vitamin D level at birth via cord blood, 600 IUs is not enough. Like the babies are born deficient in vitamin D. We have multiple randomized controlled trials, meaning like very good quality evidence showing that you can maintain mother and baby's vitamin D levels at a good place, supplementing with about 4,000 IUs per day. So that's where I start. If your blood levels are not maintained at adequate levels, you can supplement above that, and that's generally considered safe. There's some talk in the research that the recommended levels of vitamin D were actually originally underestimated by statistical error by a factor of 10. So I think when we look at this like 600 and then you see 4,000, you're like, oh my gosh, it's, it's very possible that it, we should have actually set it at 6,000 I use. So mm-hmm. I'll just leave that there for you to think about. When it comes to measuring your vitamin D levels and seeing which levels are adequate, the measurement is called 25-hydroxy-D or 25-OH-D. And the most like endocrine societies and other organizations that are setting goal levels for vitamin D or what counts as deficiency around 30 to 32 as adequate. Whereas you have some research pointing to higher amounts being better. Like that preterm birth study showed that 40 nanograms per mil was better. You have some organizations pushing for a minimum of 50. I think at this time we have the strongest evidence for pushing to at least 40, but we'll see as the research continues to go on if they define that level more clearly or not. Yeah. I know a lot of doctors in the functional medicine world will kind of point towards 60 to 80 as Mm -hmm. optimal, optimized levels. I'd love to talk about this epigenetics that what you eat affects what genes are turned on or off in your baby and in your fetus. I think that's such a cool, cool concept that not a lot of moms think about. Yeah. There's a study on choline I'll mention because I think it's really cool. This was a randomized controlled trial. So a well-done trial in 
in humans, not a rat study, where they provided mothers with either a little bit more than the recommended intake for choline. So they did 480 milligrams per day. The recommendation is 450 versus the other group supplemented with extra choline. They got 930 milligrams per day. And they looked at infant outcomes in terms of reaction time throughout infancy and toddlerhood. I think they measured it at four different time points, if memory serves me right. And they found that at all time points, the babies born to mothers from the high choline supplemented group scored better. Wow. Faster reaction time. Yeah, just all the cognitive tests better. (laughs) We have a lot of data on rat studies. I actually just came across a really interesting rat study, and I hope I don't butcher it too much in my brain. I don't have it right in front of me, but they were looking at if choline supplementation would affect the next generation and then the generation after that. So they bred a group of rats they and those were like the grandparents some of them were supplemented with choline some of them weren't and then they you know reproduced and had babies and then they chose whether or not to supplement those other groups with or without choline and then they had the grandchildren so you had three generations of rats and they actually found they were looking at markers in the brain for early signs of alzheimer's disease Mm. because alzheimer's disease is like essentially becoming an epidemic and it's something we don't know how to prevent and we don't really have any good treatment strategies for it either and it's very scary and they chose choline because it's a nutrient that has such a broad impact on brain development and seems to last well into adulthood anyways they found that the rats who had been exposed to choline from all the all generations they had the most protection from alzheimer's disease But even the ones whose grandparents had choline, but whose parents did not have choline, like it skipped a generation, like one generation had a not that great diet, those rats still fared better than the grandchildren who had poor choline intake starting with the grandparents, then their parents, and then them. It's a transgenerational thing. You're actually changing the genetic expression and like a child's risk of disease potentially going back generations. That's insane. Yeah, it's crazy. (laughs) And this type of research is like really hard to do in humans because it's forever, hence we do rat studies. But what we've learned from the human randomized controlled trial seems to support that, yeah, there is a noticeable beneficial effect on brain health. So potentially my genetics, not only affected by my mother's, but my grandmother's... (laughs) What they were eating, how they were taking care of themselves, how they were resting, restoring, all of that. Oh, so wild. And that can work like for and against you, right? Like if you know your grandmother didn't live a super healthy lifestyle or your mom didn't, that can kind of work against you. Like, again, it goes back to that. Not everything is within our control, but what is within our control, we can still take action on those things now and probably have a noticeable beneficial effect for for our children. Yeah. I'd love to talk about thyroid health just because I personally have had to heal my thyroid after having a baby. I think my TPO thyroid antibodies 18 months after were 184. Wow. Like if you just did TSH, like within normal range. So I'd love to just chat about 
you know, just the importance of your thyroid health during pregnancy and how often would you test levels? What would you ask your doctor to look for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky conversation and this was a this was a challenging thing to research for the book because there's very different schools of thought about thyroid and you get into thyroid in pregnancy which gets extremely complicated and complex and it gets even more confusing so what we know happens to the thyroid during pregnancy is that it has to ramp up production of thyroid hormones by over 50 percent and part of this is because the thyroid increases your metabolic rate and obviously like your metabolic rate is higher in pregnancy but also because your thyroid hormones are actually transferred across to the baby to supply them with thyroid hormones, which are helpful for their development, especially their brain development, up to about somewhere in like the late first trimester to mid second trimester. It's up until that point, your baby's entirely reliant on your thyroid hormones. It can't produce its mm. own. Um, it takes to a certain point in development where it can start pumping out its own thyroid hormones. So the reason that's significant is that if your thyroid does not adapt as intended with that 50% surge in thyroid hormones, it can actually be detrimental to the baby's development, particularly brain development, and also can result in just fetal loss or miscarriage. In fact, like undiagnosed thyroid issues, especially hypothyroidism, so low levels of thyroid hormones, are significantly associated with miscarriage. I wish I had the section in the book open to give you some stats, but it's staggering how high it is. In fact, if, if you've had a mis- miscarriage, it's, it's an indication to get your thyroid checked to see if there's a problem to heal that before you get pregnant again. And if you come into pregnancy with a thyroid issue, you need to have a clinician who understands the physiology of the thyroid so that they can adjust your medications accordingly. Usually you have to drastically ramp up by 50% or so your supplemental thyroid hormone so that you match what the body wants it to be doing, right? As far as postpartum, that's like another insane time of Yes. Uh, challenge for your thyroid gland. I mean, the stress that your body incurs going through birth and then recovery and then the massive increase in metabolic rate to support nursing. I mean, and then your adrenals being so worn out from like not sleeping. It's just, it's no wonder the thyroid tends to go haywire postpartum but they call it postpartum thyroiditis. So like essentially like an inflamed thyroid and a lot of women present with low thyroid symptoms, but sometimes it can go in a, in the other direction, hyperthyroid, or it can go in what they call a triphasic pattern where you'll go low and then high and then you thyroid for a while. And it's, Mm. it's all over the map and it's, it's tricky. And essentially, the only way to know if something is a problem, well, A, to pay attention to your symptoms. So it's kind of hard to tease out from like normal postpartum recovery and like normal (laughs) challenges of being a new mom because we're all exhausted and sleep deprived. But are you feeling like extremely tired, no energy, too cold or too hot, jittery, 
depressed, a lot of hair loss. I mean, some hair loss is normal. It's naturally going to happen. But like, is, is the hair loss continuing beyond the initial loss? Usually women lose pretty significant amount of hair in the like four to six month ish mark. But if it like continues to thin over time, like that's actually not normal. It should be growing back. Those can all be signs that there is a problem and, and to have your levels tested. And then as far as, of course, getting your levels tested, you really need to advocate for yourself to have a full thyroid panel done, which not many doctors want to do. Mm-hmm. Again, because I think there's this difference in schools of thought. You have the functional medicine practitioners who kind of want to look at everything and be really proactive and, and preventative and correct something before it goes into like a disease state. And then in conventional medicine, you have the mindset of, well, really only these two parameters matter, like TSH and T4, for example, and we don't really need to worry about T3 or reverse T3 or antibodies. That's not, that's not proven. That's not evidence-based yet in their eyes. So it's just a tricky difference in schools of thought around managing the thyroid. Yeah. For me, the issue is it's a quality of life issue for the mother. So even if you don't agree that your client needs to have a full thyroid panel, if they're feeling bad and they have signs and symptoms that point to some sort of a thyroid issue, check the full panel and see what's going on. Because there's a significant amount of women who have normal TSH, but then have like elevated antibodies for you or have really low T3, which is directly related to how much energy and and your mental well-being you're going to have. So it's tricky, but you do have to advocate for it. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to give our listeners some like quick tips. So for example, going back to not just pounding the carbs <laughs> through your pregnancy, but a lot of women first trimester just have a hard time getting protein and fats down period and kind of have this morning sickness, which isn't really morning. It's kind of all day sickness. What would be some like top tips, like top three tips that you would recommend for them? Nausea is so hard because it encompasses your entire day. It just like sucks the life out of you. (laughs) So, So I feel for you. First of all, you really have to take a step back like mindset wise from trying to be ridiculously in control of everything during this time your body has nutrient stores for a reason nausea happens for a reason they actually believe that it may happen as a result of the changes the good changes happening in your thyroid so it actually is associated with healthy pregnancies like the embryo is more likely to be viable if you're experiencing nausea, not to say if you don't have nausea, something's wrong, but to give you some reassurance, it may have a purpose and it might not all be bad. It's still miserable to live with, but you just have to try like on a daily basis, try to figure out what your body will allow you to eat and eat it. (laughs) I I really don't have a magic thing. If I had the magic thing, I would be a millionaire. There's a (laughs) lot of different strategies. One strategy is 
aiming for blood sugar balance. Your blood sugar tends to go hypoglycemic in the first trimester, and so this tends to correspond with you wanting to eat more carbohydrates during that time, which is okay to do. So the challenge with eating more carbohydrates is that your blood sugar goes a little more up and down, up and down, up and down, and that surge and drop in blood sugar throughout the day can make the nausea worse. So yes, eat more carbohydrates. Try to make them as best quality of carbohydrates as you can, like homemade sweet potato fries might be preferable to a donut. And try to match them with some fat and protein so you can lessen the the blood sugar spike that you get from them. So even if it's just like a little bite. A little bite. Uh, Like we're not aiming for like a six ounce steak or something here. But like, okay, you've settled your stomach with a couple sweet potato fries. Like the nausea has settled down a little bit. Now, can you have a bite of cheese? Could you have a bite of chicken? Could you have, I don't know, an egg, three bites of an egg? Could you do a protein shake? Sometimes that's better tolerated because it's like cold and it doesn't smell as strong. So you could use you know, a clean protein powder or you could use like plain Greek yogurt in it as your protein option, but really trying to get some protein in there actually does go a long way with mitigating the nausea symptoms and does a better job than just doing like pure carbs all day long because you can, you can get into that trap too and it'll help for like 15 minutes and then it's downhill again. And so the protein kind of helps offset that a little bit. Any supplement recommendations? For nausea, the best research we have is on vitamin B6 and ginger. Ginger has been used for centuries of any herb. It is by far the safest and the most efficacious of any of them for pregnancy, but specifically for nausea as well. So you could just get like fresh ginger root and cut it up and make tea with it or add it to foods. Like one thing you might consider is foods that naturally have ginger in them, like a carrot ginger soup, for example, or maybe you do some sort of like Korean beef stir fry that has fresh ginger in it. Like you can incorporate it into your foods and it might help settle your stomach and allow you to eat actual food, (laughs) food of substance. Yeah. So worth a try. And then, like I said, vitamin B6 and in lieu of a supplement, avocados, bananas, those are going to be pretty high in it. You also have like meat and and animal proteins are pretty high in B6. But again, it becomes that balance of like, can you tolerate it right now or not? Like you have to make the call because it feels better to avoid throwing up than it does to force yourself to eat something and then throw up. Right. And then what happens after that first trimester? Like suddenly it's like the cloud lifts and you're like, oh my God, I'm not nauseous every minute of every day. Is it a change in insulin demands? Is it? We don't know for sure. I mean, for, for the most part, the massive change that the thyroid is undergoing has like ceased. Like the thyroid now stabilizes at just a higher level of production, but consistent. The placenta is now formed, meaning like the structure of the placenta, even if it keeps growing. All the internal organs of the baby are formed by like eight weeks of pregnancy. So like all of these massive, crazy, rapid cell replication, creation of new organs, creation of a brain, like those things that they're like fundamental, most difficult periods of development are like done. 
yes, there's also a shift like metabolically in what your body is doing. So like in early pregnancy, your body is in an anabolic state. It's very insulin sensitive. You want to eat more carbs. It wants you to accrue fat. And in the later part of pregnancy, your body switches to a catabolic state where the baby is growing much more rapidly in mass and your body actually starts preferentially breaking down some of your fat stores and like upping your metabolism. So your appetite is usually pretty high so that you can send those nutrients to the baby. So it's possible that some of those, just that natural shift that happens midway-ish in pregnancy is also related to the change in nausea. Like your body wants you to eat more food <laughs> at that time. <laughs> and it generally feels better not gorging on carbohydrates in the latter half of pregnancy. We're in the early part of pregnancy. It's kind of just part of survival mode. Yeah. Lily, you've been so amazing. I feel like I could <laughs> take you out to dinner and <laughs> just like hear, just deep dive into your knowledge. Where can people find you online? I am at lilynicholsrdn.com. That's my main website. And that'll link out to all my books and other things. I have separate websites for the books, but you'll find like the good stuff, my blog, my books, what I'm up to right now over at lilynicholsrdn.com. You can also download there on the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy for free if you want to see that. So if you go back to like the early part of our conversation where we were talking about what's wrong with the guidelines and how is real food different, that's the part of the book where I really dive into, I want to say the basics, but it's also in depth. Like you get a nutrient analysis of like, what does the conventional meal plan look like? What does a real food meal plan look like? what's the difference in nutrient density? Like down to that level, the numbers don't lie. So if you're curious to learn more, but you aren't really sure you want to buy the whole book, at least read the first chapter and, and see where I'm going with this stuff. Yeah. Are you on social media? Yep. So I'm most active these days on Instagram and my handle's Lily Nichols RDN, just like my website. Awesome. And practitioner courses? They're out there, right? Yes, they yes. are. So I co-founded a, a thing called the Women's Health Nutrition Academy with a functional medicine real food dietitian friend of mine. And we offer continuing education courses on all things women's health nutrition. So my colleague tends to focus a lot on the fertility side of things. And I tend to focus on the pregnancy and postpartum side of things. So if you wanted to, for example, get more information about vitamin D, I have a whole 90 minute plus Q&A specifically on vitamin D going through like 70 plus studies in a whole bunch of details. So if you like really like the deep dive, check out some of our webinars over there where we get into the weeds. Amazing. Our listeners are those kind of people. They, they want to know the why, the why, the why. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. It's been so great to have you on. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.